Chinese people love buying houses. They believe in real estate. They believe in holding something real. It goes into the, the culture of land owning. You work hard your whole life to acquire property. You can pass down through generations. So when given a possibility, given the opportunity, they go and buy real estate. So you have this group of people buying real estate and then you drive the houses in a certain city. Other people go, hey, that, that's cool. I want that too. So they come and buy. And then the, the prices go up. You start a chain effect. It's the same everywhere else. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have John Yu. John is the head of the West Coast Global Strategy and Business Development at Hong Kong, USA, the U.S. subsidiary of a global real estate investment, development, and management holding company headquartered in Beijing. The Hong Kong Group holds residential, commercial, healthcare, tourism, and cultural properties in excess of over $5 billion around the world. In this episode, John will shed some light on what Chinese investors are investing in and what their strategies are, even with changing global policies. We'll see what they're buying and how they're getting their money out of China. By learning where big investors are placing their bets, you can follow the trend and make enormous profits. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you want to know the secrets of how top investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and what do you do. Hello, everybody. And thank you so much for having me, Sean. My name is John Yu. I'm the director of business development for Hong Kong USA. Hong Kong USA, we are the North America arm for a real estate developer coming out of China, Hong Kong, uh, the conglomerate. We are currently ranked number 62 in China. Our focus is in hospitality, incubation parks, commercial, as well as um, high luxury multifamily. We carry the similar philosophy over here in America, and we hope to make a presence as well service to our investors as well uh, future partners here in the, in the United States. That's super exciting because we always talk about Chinese investors, how they're bringing the money here into the Bay Area or even where you're at in Southern California, and how because they're bringing it international money, suddenly the prices here get inflated. So I'm very happy to have you on the show today to talk about your business and what you do. Before we get started, can you spell out the name of the company you work for? Of course, H-O-N-G-K-U-N-U-S-A, Hong Kong, USA. Now that is about as Chinese as you can be, but uh, we want to say true to our name and our brand, which kind of is a good segue into this topic of discussion about Chinese investors coming here and what we do. So we do is we're a little bit different, right, than our predecessors, our colleagues in front of the industry. You might have known them already, Greenland, Ocean Wide, Shanghai Construction. They are, for the lack of a better word, they're bigger. And then they are a little bit more well-packed in resources. By that, I mean uh, reserves. By that, I mean manpower. And also, I mean political influence, which is, as you know, a huge thing in commercial real estate developments, or really any kind of real estate development when you get to a certain scale. So what we do here, really, uh, Hong Kong USA, our 
building and investment philosophy is divided into two parts. One part is on the East Coast. We are building most of the ground up. Right now, we have $1.7 billion in pipeline right now. So, and this includes your high luxury condos. And we also have another project, very excited, that should be breaking ground sometime now early next year. And this project will have all your major food groups. Yeah, this will have your retail, have your hospitality, have your commercial, have your residential. Now, how does that work? For your listeners that might not be too familiar with this concept, this concept is very popular in Asia. You see this a lot, especially in Korea, China, Hong Kong, because due to the restriction, right, in land size and density, especially more urban areas, you what what um, what developers actually do now is kind of wrap everything up into a perfect little gift box. And then that gift box create a perfect little ecosystem containing all these major food groups. So, for instance, Sean, you're working one of these buildings. Guess what? Uh, your clients are coming in, they're flying, they're flying from, uh, from Shanghai. They get to stay quite literally about five minutes walking away from you in the hotel across the lobby. And then you guys can go downstairs to the, uh, to the commercial area, uh, to, the, to, the, to dine, to shop. You can entertain them. And then at the end of the day, they can go back to the hotel if you if you choose to. And guess what? Five minutes away, there are your condos. After you get off work, you just go right home. It's a it creates a perfect little ecosystem and little and a little society. You see these things popping up more and more in your gateway cities, especially San Francisco, Los Angeles. We kind of have something similar to it, and then New York. You're gonna start seeing it pretty soon in Miami, in Chicago. You will see some, and then. Awesome is something that work in progress. But you see this, you're going to see this more and more. And then so that's on the East Coast. On the West Coast, what we do is more retail. Um, by retail, I don't mean, you know, your Gap or your, you know, uh, your Nike. By retail, I mean retail for investments, where we focus more on funds and fundraising, really particular for the funds part, whether it be a project specific, whether it be, sometimes we, uh, we touch FOF too which means our funds of funds, and we also touch other products as well. And we also develop here, but it's more on acquisition and then buy and then fix and then either manage or exit. So we function on the West Coast at value-add philosophy, meaning we're looking at right now the, the asset cloud, we're looking at our commercial offices. We buy them, fix them up, manage them a little bit better, leave some meat on the bone for the next investor to take it over, and we exit. So that's what we do, developer asset management, as well as financial opportunities in real estate development. So how long has your company been involved in uh, purchasing assets here in the United States? About 10 years. We came about 10 years ago, about unofficially, to really acquire lands, to prospect, and then to lay the foundation. So about, yeah, about 10 years ago, we've been here for a while. We've been, we've been talking to the locals, we've been, talk, we've been acquiring professionals, and we've been really setting up our roots and our foundations in the American, in the United States, North American market, to make sure that we do everything right, and also to make sure that actions that we take, as well as the products that we produce, are responsible, are good, are in line with our philosophy and the trust that our investors and our partners have put in us. And how big is your team? Right now, our company is roughly plus or minus a little bit, about 100-something people across the... Uh, we have footprints in New Jersey, New York, Boston, D.C., San Francisco, Seattle, Irvine, Los Angeles. And how has the trade war affected business for you guys? 
let's talk about the obvious. It creates panic. It creates fears, and then it creates a lack of trust in what is to come. Because people, a lot of investors, especially are、uh, your layman investors, they 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 really don't know what's going to happen. And then、uh, for some of the business owners, this affects quite directly into the livelihood and to、uh, quite directly affects into the liquidity that they have to invest in other things, for instance, financial products or real estate. So you see, really, at least from what I see and notice, you see primarily two group of people under this kind of little bit scale of the future scenario. One of them is they sit on the fence, they quite literally don't know what to do. I'm just gonna wait it out. I'm gonna see whether China or America is going to bring this to an end, and then if I don't touch this, I don't move anywhere, I should be fine. And then you have the other group, they are. The bipolar extremes, right? They either just go, "I'm gonna double down on everything because I believe I can take advantage of this," or I feel the need to liquidate all my assets and either move it completely out of China or away from America into other countries. Or you have a group that just say, "I will not do anything." So this falls under the still falls under the bipolar group where it just the, the middle ground is kind of disappearing. So the trade war, however. It's temporary. I'm sure that most of your, at least a, a good portion of your listeners, might agree with me that America and China cannot do this for forever. They literally cannot. So this is why we are seeing a lot of、um, your retail investors right now. They are choosing to either not do anything with the money, or they are putting out of the investment, small cap, very small cap on the retail side, or they go here just. You know that I'm. I'm sorry to go into memes here. Take my money. They go pretty heavy, especially、um, on funds that's on a security structure. That's more on the security side, more on the clarified, clarified stage. They are very willing to go into it to just say, "Here, I might as well do something with it right now." So,、uh, but the trade war for us right now on the company level, it actually doesn't affect us that much as developers. Now, part of it for Hong Kong specifically. It's a little bit annoying because a lot of our materials we do source from our own factories in China, and guess what? We get tariffs on our own products coming into our own company, so that's slightly annoying. But there's um when there's a problem, there's a solution. So we are we are putting our weight across, and we ensure that our hard co- our hard costs will not go up dramatically or go outside of the flex range that we that that we're co- that we are comfortable with. So hopefully that answers your questions. How the trade war has、uh, affected us thus far. So basically,、uh, you know, in terms of cost for you guys, yeah, I guess you're spending a bit more in materials because now you have extra tariffs. But in terms of investor pool, like people are still giving you guys money. Yeah. So not only are they giving us money, we are seeing a lot of retail investor、uh, influx of retail investors. For instance, one of our partner companies is this financial platform Machine. They、um, they specialize in alternative investments. So they have products in you know Oaktree,、um, Distract Debt, Bread, Life Insurance, Cash Out, these kind of products, and then a lot of our retail clients are Chinese based, and then they because of this trade war, because of this uncertainty, they bring they want to invest more in these things in products outside of China in not so much a hedge, but more of I don't want I really don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. And then since、uh, these products they do offer, they are they, they are name brands. They are from a reputable company. They are track record and they promise a relatively good return. These investors they they like it and they bring their friends 
not so much in droves, but we definitely see increase due to this our current political situation right now. Uh, what kind of returns are your investors looking for, and what are their main goals? Okay, so that's a little bit broad. So our, our investors, it varies. We have our retail investors, and then we have our LPs, our limited partners, and our have we have our partners on an even higher level. So let's start from the top and uh, from from the top down, right on the pyramid. So on the pyramid, you have the top. You have your you you have your investors, your partners with a very healthy check size. Now these guys, they are looking for whatever they're looking for. So they have a comfort zone on what, what kind of hurdles they're looking for. They have a comfort zone in the type of cooperation that they are doing with their sponsor or us in this case, the developer. And then you know you kind of trickle down a little bit. You have your investors or your group of investors that even either syndicated the money or they have enough liquidity to invest, but not on a very high amount, then these, they usually like to be, sometimes they're a bit more hands-on. They like to, again, the kind of returns, it varies on the projects, and then it depends on negotiation. And then you have, then we're giving towards our retail investors, their foundation, or say for some of these funds, some, especially some of these project-specific funds that they are really looking for. I want to know my fund is backed by uh, second place on the deed. They want their security structure to be very safe. They want to know that the return I have is going to be at least meeting market, meaning whatever market they, they think. And which comes to another problem is that a lot of time retail uh, retail investors, they are not all educated. And then that be um, that kind of sometimes bring a little bit problem to our colleagues who really want to educate our investors on how well constructed our product is. And how much are they typically investing per project? That depends sort of funds. Sometimes you have your thresholds, so you have anywhere between 550K to 100K. And then you have the bigger thresholds. You're seeing, you can see anywhere between 250 to 500. And then you have the bigger, you know, you go up the pyramid, you see thresholds that come in, say $5 million or up to $8 million to open the door. So what kind of product is a $5 million threshold? Like, what is that? What are you guys investing in? Oh, $5 million is not a lot. So for instance, right, let's just say, let's just, for example, we want to do a office in, where are you located, Sean? San Francisco? Proper? Bay Area, San Jose. It's about an hour south of SF. Yeah. San Jose is fantastic. So let's just say we want to do an office project in San Jose. The entire project size is about $50 million, right? And then this includes your acquisition, this includes all your soft, all the uh, you know all the fees you had to pay, and this includes uh, all your capital as, uh, expenditures, everything involved. So fifty million dollars. Now let's just say the bank is gonna give you, uh, or somebody's gonna give you a um, institution gonna give you a loan. Let's just say fifty five fifty five percent. The rest of the money is quite substantial. You had to come up with it. Let's just say you're lucky enough to get a mess. Well, not lucky enough. Let's say you're able to piece together a mess, a mezzanine, and then the rest you still got to split the equity. So that's how the money come in. So, and then $5 million is not astronomical. We're seeing partners, we're experiencing partners who come in with way bigger size than that. And then that's where the fun part really, the fun part of commercial real estate comes in is that you get to structure these deals. You get to see these giant Lego puzzles, if you will, come into being. And how do you acquire the professionals to construct this Lego project? How do you fund this Lego project? That's where it all kind of wrap up into this little puzzle piece. And then you know it's really cool when 
you are able to bring all these people together, you know, all these resources together, and to see everything come to being, and then you exit, and that makes for a great year. Absolutely. So what can someone be expecting in a $5 million entry? Because, I mean, you can invest in multiple different syndications at $50,000 a pop. You assume that for a $5 million entry, you're going to be given something a little bit special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, you get something, let's just say you see as an LP, then that means you get something a little bit extra, a little oomph, right, on the exit. Whereas, let's just say you exit, as a, so let's just say part of the $50 million stack is a project-specific fund, and then you just put in your 50K, and then you'll promise something like a 7 point, uh, something like an, 8, uh, like an 8% return per annum. That's all you get. But if you say $25 million, then you get a bump on the exit as well. So you get a lot more in return. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And then we can also relate that to, say, residential real estate. So let's just, let's talk houses, right? Or even your two units or three units. What does $5 million do? $5 million means that you can buy a mega house, fix that, and try to sell that mega house. Or you can buy a few houses, you can buy a portfolio, or you know what? You can probably step into this apartment range, depending on where you are, right? Probably not in Northern California, but in SoCal, you can get, you can get some smaller older apartment buildings for $47 million. It's very doable, sometimes even lower. So what kind of return are you looking for? What kind of control do you want? It varies. And then it really depends on the philosophy, the risk appetite, as well as sometimes even the kind of portfolio that the money back person with the money that they're looking for or whatever they're holding. So as a project manager or a sponsor, if you will, it is up to you to kind of make a sale. Right, let's just say for instance, um, today I want to in San Gabriel. Okay, this is now, now this is a live project that me and my wife I'm discussing is that okay, so in San Gabriel, Southern California, you, you quote unquote six to six area where a lot of Chinese immigrants they congregate. We're looking at say a seventy-five door apartment and then let's just say we're gonna need about twenty-two million dollars. Part of my wife saying, Hey, I know this I, I know a friend of mine, this guy named Sean, he's doing extremely well in NorCal. I heard he just let go a few projects. Right now, he has a very healthy liquidity. I think he might have about 3 to $5 million that he's looking to reinvest into something else. So I'm going to make an approach to Sean, tell him, hey, can we talk? I have this project. And then, so this is the breakdown, right? If you're coming at this amount, you'll hold this amount in equity. And then with this amount of equity, I can promise you, well, sorry, not promise. We are looking very likely at a certain number of return. And now depending whether you be IRR focus or equity multiple focus, we kind of conversation kind of change along with the performer, how you construct the numbers, how you kind of move the pieces around to make sure that this is something you're comfortable with, this is something I'm comfortable with, and then we engage. On the other hand, we might we can at the same amount of number, I mean the same amount, we could be looking at an office, a retail plaza, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, is like for me, for, for the business development side, we approach high networks, we approach family offices, we approach other, other firms to say, hey, this is what we have. What do you guys think? Can we make this work? How do we structure this? How do we make sure that this, is, this makes sense for you? How do we make sure that this fits within your, your philosophy, this fits within your guidance, and how we can work together? And then you see this all the time. And then this is why it's, very, it's been pretty cool to deal with a lot of high net worth and, whole, and ultra high net worth investors from China or the surrounding South Pacific areas, where they tell you, I have this, um, so about two years ago I was in Thailand, 
and uh, me and my wife was uh, staying in this hotel, and we're having breakfast with the wife of the owner of the hotel. Now, this is not a small hotel by any means, but I don't want to bring on a brand because then it's... So we are having breakfast, and then we're just communicating. When I asked her, quite frankly, how did you guys come to this place where you are right now, socially, financially, politically? How, how, do, you, how do you make this work? And she goes, by taking risks. But you have to understand what kind of risk that you want to take. So for instance, financially, it makes sense for us to come be a essentially a one of the major majority partner in this hotel, whereas our background is not in hospitality. But it never makes sense for us. We did our due diligence, or our people did our did our due diligence, uh, did a due diligence. They did the background. They understand the story. They understand the partnership. They understand all the nitty gritty. And guess what? It's worth to take the risk. So at the end of the day, you know, if some of your listeners out there that want to start their own projects, whether it may be big, medium, small, whatever it may be, remember, if you believe in your projects, go ahead and find out where you can source the money, where you can source the resources, where you can source the, the cooperation. Because at the end of the day, real estate, it goes back to cooperation. You're not going to do this by yourself. And then if you do, I strongly suggest you talk to somebody who's been in the field because remember, What's one thing when people talk about real estate, what it comes all the time? Leverage. How do you leverage your resources? So same thing here. What kind of de- doesn't matter what kind of project. Real estate development, we're going to leverage our resources. We're going to find cooperations. We're going to find partnerships. And we, at the end of the day, we believe in our project. We believe in the profit that will make us. And we believe in that how to make it work. And it will work. And guess what? We make it work. Yeah, very good. You know, it's actually, it's actually interesting because when I was actually that first question, I was wondering if their goals were more in terms of, like you said, hedging their funds, like they don't want to have all their money in China per se. And some people I've heard at least that they would put their money in investments in America, not really for these high, you know, 10% a year on year or IRRs, right? They just want their money in a safe place, maybe even like 500k so that they can get their EB5 and get their citizenship. Have you seen that happening at all? Yeah, so EB5, right? I, I'm pretty familiar with EB5. In past tenure, my past experience, I was with a local a local developer in Orange County. Um, they have their own and they manage their own regional center. We had over 800 investors from all across the world, primarily Asia. So EB5, right? EB5 is a tricky top subject right now, especially since that we're going to see an increase soon in the investment amount. But uh, is EB5 a good place to put your money safely? Yes and no, right? Yes, because that just said the project is fantastic. Your money is backed by everything under the sun. Sure, but is it really safe? No, because if a project fails, everything under the sun pro- probably will not protect you from a judgment-proof developer who honestly have nothing else in the books to give you. So what does that mean? That means at the end of the day, EB-5 is still a viable way for investors to enter into the United States, given that they are willing to contribute a certain amount of capital to the benefit of a licensed, a legitimate, and an approved regional center for the sake of whatever business that, uh, that they are kind of backing, you know, they're sponsoring, and then for the sake of development of the United States economy. So, and to kind of go a little bit more into the topic is that I don't know if you, uh, you are aware of this weight. Right, the Chinese investors they wait 10, 15 years to get a green card. So, is it really safe to put your money, 500k, which is by no means a small amount, to, no matter who you are, into a project 
for 10 to 15 years. I don't think it's safe. And let's say even, even you know, you're looking at opportunity funds right now, I still kind of question it. I had to do a lot of due diligence. And then that alone saying that it's for an EB-5 project. So a lot of investors right now that's still purely doing it, or not purely, that primarily doing it for citizenship or uh, your green card matters. But um, they, when they put the money over here, Chinese investors, they are still accustomed to real estate investment. Stuff they can see, stuff they can touch, stuff they can smell, and stuff they can hear. So they are still more familiar with buying and selling of real estate or real estate-related products. But more and more recently, not recently, maybe five to 10 years, Chinese investors coming, especially Chinese investors coming across the ocean, they like to see financial products that's been offered by American brands, American companies, American institutions that are not normally being promoted in China and that, that, that they are normally being accepted or promoted or being made aware of to your American investors. They like this because it's a good product. America, with its pretty established legal system, with pretty uh, established this kind of reporting and check and balances between all entities. You know what it says? It says safety. It means safety for your investors. It means safety for these immigrants who honestly don't are coming to a foreign land with their hard-earned money. It's safety. So they like this. And then they see and then more and more of these investors that have money to invest, they want to go to countries that have established laws, established regulations, established companies, established brands. They want to come here and they want to park their money here because they understand that even though risk sometimes generates reward, but you cannot put all your eggs in one basket and you have to diversify your risk and come to America, putting my money in some of these good products here. It's the best choice for my family, for my future generations and for myself and for my livelihood. Yeah. Is there like a desired return that your investors are looking for? Ah, see, it depends on the investor. That's a whole spectrum, right? You see your ultra safe stuff. That's um, that, so let's just say funds. So they're gonna because um, you know, you're coming with a thirty k, fifty k. You're not gonna go into the. You're most likely not gonna see it at the GP, and you're probably gonna be at a retail level or be at the funds level. So it depends on the funds. You're gonna see anywhere between two to five, and you're gonna see anywhere between five to say seven or eight, and then you're gonna see your upwards, your upswings, right? So no, not upswing your higher um, elevated returns, eight, 10, maybe 12. But a lot of times I tell my investors that if they promise I 12 to 15 or even up to 20, really, really, really look into the documents. Where do you sit? Where does your money go into? What, what does the project say? Because at the end of the day, if they're not willing to pay you that much, that means they cannot get their money anywhere else, right? Because the cost of capital, a lot of times investors, they get blinded by how much return is and don't realize that this money that you're investing, you're essentially lending, in a sense, this money to the sponsors, to the developers or the project managers, wherever it may be, and then they had to pay you. Why are they willing to pay you such a high amount for your money? Because wouldn't it make sense for people to pay less amount for the money? You would, right? Why do I want to increase my cost? So take into consideration highest return is not always the best and the range it varies between 8 to 12 you're gonna see most investors they, they, they like the number especially double digits yeah 
And is this like on an equity basis, like you get profits, and you share it that way? Or is it like, okay, we're going to give it to you 8% a year kind of as like a debt position? The, the latter, the latter. Because to, go to, to be on the equity side, you usually, especially with the type of projects that we're doing, we want to see a lot more commitment, right? So usually if you're going to come in with a 30K, 50K, something like 100K, you are going to be on a, on a stage where, you know, we promise a certain return or, you know, you're expected a certain amount of return. You know, there's sometimes there may be fluctuations, but yeah, probably not on the equity side. But so equity is interesting, right? So a lot of times people want equity, but why? You know, and then besides to say that you own something, what does that even mean? Do you really own anything? Do you own like percent over percent over percent? What does that mean? So again, that goes into your risk appetite of what you really want out of your money. If you really want ownership, hey, for 50K, I'll be more than happy to go with somebody and then start flipping houses. You invest in a few, if you invest in a few, say, you have a smaller condo, smaller SFRs, chain of bomb and make portfolios. And guess what? You really own equity there, right? Yeah. I mean, I think what they want is maybe like a little bit of a lottery ticket system where, okay, if this project does really, really, really well, I want some of that upside too. I don't just want that fixed 8%. Now, I would definitely say uh, go look into pre-IPO stuff because then you really want to put a lottery. That's a lottery right there, you know, <laughs> right? That's true. That's true. So what happens if you guys, what happens if the project doesn't go well? Do you guys have to pay them back plus 8% or is it kind of like a, I, I don't know, because it's a debt position, you have to pay them back plus interest, right? No, no, no. We pay them back and then this is all built on the models and, and this is where developers take the risk too. And then we build it in and then you... <laughs> When we make a project, we make sure within, you know, reasonable, cal- reasonable calculation, reasonable doubt that the project will go well and then the project will yield a type of return, that uh, yield the type of profit we're looking for. And then uh, you know, we kind of space it out is that, not just that the project will go as well as we want to, right? It's just the market thing. Everything can went, uh, went around under the sun, it did. But at least we usually come to the point where only investors get paid back or our partners are paid back. They get what they wanted, but for us, we either take less share, you know, we take a smaller return, but we want to make sure that our working relationship, that our business relationship with everybody who believe in us are still viable and they still exist. Because at the end of the day, this project might not work out for the best, but guess what? You guys got what you guys uh, what we promise you, and that's working on this project. Cool. So I know recently the market here, at least in the Bay Area, has softened quite a bit. And one of the reasons is because of, the trade war and because apparently it's harder to get money out of China. Do you want to talk about that? Like what are some of the challenges that people are having from getting their money out of China? So very obviously that's a regulation, right? In place that's saying the Chinese government, they want at least um, just on a regular basis, not a regular basis, they say that you cannot exchange more than $50,000, essentially USD out of China every year per person. That's a big limitation. Why are you going to do $50,000? You cannot buy a house here. Right, you can maybe put a down payment for a small condo, maybe, but what are you gonna do? So some of the most popular ways, right? Some people do is they ask their friends, family for help, saying you still have your quota this year. You know, okay, Sean, I trust you. Can you, you know, can you help me translate transfer fifty thousand dollars? And in America, then you return my money back, right? So that's one of the more popular ways people are doing. But even that way is it kind of falls within a gray area. And then I really need listeners or people who have this need to be careful because uh, we've seen a lot of people who saw this situation, this hypothetical between me and Sean, Sean helping me. But guess what? When Sean went to say Bank of China to apply for a credit card, the system showed up that, hey, you've been helping your cousin John, you know, moving money over here. 
the blacklisted. We're seeing that. So be careful about that. China government is a very uh, well-structured government. The China government is a very smart government. So they are under, they are aware of these loopholes. But this is one of the more popular ways. And some of the other ways, uh, you know, your very traditional ways, they're through like, legitimate means, especially government, I mean, companies. They have invested. Essentially, they get, for lack of better terms, approvals, like waivers, saying that you can, you can transfer XYZ amount of money out of China for the sake of, say, conducting XYZ type of businesses. And that's a whole approval process. China's done, the government getting involved is a whole process. And that's usually how companies that they structure the liquidity, they structure the operational funds through these legitimate means. And now, of course, we got to hear what? We got to hear the underground banks. What are underground banks? Underground banks are essentially the Chinese underground railway for money. You have these people that go, hey, so let's So I have a cousin, Sean, in America. So I go, hey, Sean, so I really need to bring this money over. I need to um, say bring 150K. I have a, I have a renminbi, you have a USD. Okay. So you uh, you just give me the money in America because you have the liquidity, you've been there for forever, you have the savings, and I give the renminbi in China. Okay. Well, why is this? This is a weird, again, in a gray area. Now, what are we afraid of? We are afraid of quite literally money laundering. So at least for us, we follow all KYC procedures uh, with our fund investor, with our you know investors in general. We make sure we kind of have a conversation with them that, hey, so how did the wealth come about? How did the money come about? We want to make sure that this is legitimate because we want, again, I want to make sure that all the listeners who are listening is that it's, it's, it's terrible to break the law. A lot of these things, it takes a little bit more time. It takes a little bit more elbow grease, but there are legitimate ways to kind of liquidate your asset and bring them over here for certain needs. But if you break the law and then sometimes things happen, you know, then you're really caught between a rock and a hard place. I heard so many horror stories of investors, really. They think a certain way is good. So they try to wire the money over here. And guess what? The account get frozen. The asset get frozen. And then it raises red flag on the China side and on the America side. Now both, of, and now both countries start doing conducting business with them. And then you have like $400,000 caught in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. What are you going to do? So... There are legitimate ways, and then there are, there are ways that the Chinese government kind of put in place to make sure that if you're looking for legitimate investment, for legitimate needs, follow the proper channels and uh, talk to your institutions. A lot of banks, they allow this kind of forward lending program. For instance, right, some of the banks that me and my wife work with, uh, they make sure that, hey, we lend money to foreign investors who want to buy houses here. Sometimes they go out to as high as a 70% OTV. Why not? Because they, they're with because they are, they are willing to take your asset and your income as collateral, say, in China. I mean, obviously, the guidelines are a little bit more strict, but there's still legitimate ways. So look for legitimate ways, and this kind of fluidity is a lot of, a lot, it's going to be a lot of urban legend that follows around, and a lot of people get, for lack of a better word, they get swindled out of the money, uh, they fall into legal trouble, so be careful about those. Yeah. Can someone just buy like a bunch of cryptocurrency and then with RMB and then just, I mean, is that illegal or what's up with that? Yes, of cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is an interesting issue. Cryptocurrency, as you know, China government doesn't really like cryptocurrency. They can't really control it. They don't really know what it is, but and they even ban uh, crypto farms. But a lot of crypto funds are coming out of China right now, and they're actually being managed from in China, uh, where the you know the other parts of the funds are maybe located primarily in you know the Netherlands, Germany, Poland, and sometimes Australia. So yes, you can. But then you run into another problem is that when you bring the money over here in America, the American government is not looking to it because American government, 
They also don't like this. A lot of people use cryptocurrency as a way to do money laundering, to kind of get money across to evade taxes. So when you do that, you, there is a trace, and then you better hope they don't come and knock it. Because if they come and knock it, you're definitely going to get knocked on the door by both countries. Be very, very careful. And then you'll be not like EB-5. So just in case uh, you don't know, EB-5, one of the requirements is that uh, you have to show the legitimacy of the source or your source of funds. So you're investing 500K. Did you acquire this money legally? Did you pay the taxes? How did you move the money around from Amer- from China to America? All of this had to be legitimate. You had to submit all of these supporting documents to the USCIS. So guess what? The government can take a look at it. The current the RMB to currency to USD method was pretty widely popular. A lot of people tested the water. Four to three years back, it was very popular until a lot of people just got denied. A lot of people got the money locked up and it, it didn't generate great results. And then, yet again, be careful because when it comes, especially in the United States government, if it's a special money laundering, you're indeed do do. Yep. So, the thing about the 50K thing you were just talking about, how in um, you're only allowed you're only allowed to put in 50K from China to America. I feel like I've heard of this a long time ago, but it seems like the uh, Chinese buyer pool has like shrunk in the past two years or so. So has something changed in the past two years? Yeah, something has changed. They are being a little bit more tight, the money transfer. They are crossing the T's and dotting their I's. They're checking for your assets flowing. They're checking, uh, you know, do you have anything outside of the country? So, and then uh, with a lot of other factors, this costs the decrease of flow of liquid money from China into America. And then another thing to consider is that a lot of this liquidity, uh, historically, it comes through Hong Kong. So a lot of things happened with Hong Kong since then. And Hong Kong is uh, slightly different now. The situation is a little bit more complicated. So all these factors take into effect on how how restricted the channel may be. And another thing is that I think we all experience, especially our gateway cities, San Francisco, Fremont, San Jose, 626, um, Irvine, Los Angeles, or San Diego even, a lot of these countries, a lot of these places, we've seen an influx of Chinese buyers essentially driving up the market, driving up the market, driving up the market, driving up the market. Well, but for these investors, they also understand that the market reaches a certain point. Now, do I want to pay more to keep driving this up? Or do I also kind of want to hold on a little bit? Another thing, uh, one of, another one of the major factors is the Chinese real estate economy itself, right? So a lot of these investors, their money really came from the Chinese real estate market. As we know, some of the most expensive places in the world, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, these four cities, the houses cost tremendous prices. But some of these prices, you buy them for 100K USD maybe 10 years ago. Now, for some reason, that was $1.5 million USD. A lot of wealth, the wealth, they come from that. So a lot of wealth, the, the bubble, they're, they're also afraid that if your bubble crashes, and also with the Chinese restriction on the ability to purchase and sell these homes based on geographical locations and your really your citizenship of the province or city, a lot of things pay to the fact. And so all these kind of mixed into this weird cocktail of Chinese investors not being able to liquidate their assets and coming out of China and then, or really quite literally having their money locked up somewhere else and they just cannot support the American real estate economy anymore. That makes sense. Uh, you, you guys are based in the United States, right? 
So our yeah, obviously our American side is we are based our headquarters in New York, and then we have offices in DC and Boston, and then our West Coast office is Santa Clara and then in Irvine. Okay, how come someone wouldn't just create? I, mean, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but why can't someone just create like an investment company in China, collect everything in RMB, and then buy assets that way? How are you gonna get the money over here to buy the assets? Is that still a challenge? Right, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talk about this, right? Companies can't just buy stuff, right? No, no, no. Because the legitimate process of getting the approval, the waiver to have your money come over here, is by no way uh, an easy thing to do. And then you must have established a certain record, a certain business plan, and other things that allow the government to say, you know what, this is okay. Otherwise, if you do not bring the money over here, how are you going to bring the money over here? I mean, sure, there are some instances. Where American side, they are saying that okay, so you buy this here in America, we buy something here in China, and there's some kind of you know exchange, but that's not a norm, and that's not feasible for everybody, right? Okay, so it's a lot easier to set up a company here and have them worry about the money transfer. Well, I mean the money transfer, right? So it also goes into what you transfer money for. Is it simply to purchase, and the amount, the time frame, what's your schedule looking like? All these things play to effect. And who we are working with? Where is it? Not only just in China, but also in America. And then the channels. Uh, by me, by that I mean, are you just gonna wire it through? And then if you are, which uh, institution to go through? It gets quite complicated. Hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you know, just ten years ago, you probably buy a house for 100k. Now it's boomed to like 1.5 million dollars. What What was the cause of this? Like, how? Why is the price of the property so expensive in those areas? Chinese people love buying houses. And then、uh, they believe in real estate. They believe in holding something real. It goes into the, the culture of land owning. It goes to the culture of, you know, you work hard your whole life to acquire property, to acquire assets. They can pass down through generations to acquire wealth. So when given the possibility, given the opportunity, they go and buy real estate. And then also again, this is a domino effect. So you have this group of people buying real estate, and then you drive the houses in a certain city. Other people go, "Hey, that that's cool. I want that too." So they come and buy, and the city go, and and the, and then the, the prices go up. It's not a chain effect. It's the same everywhere else. Another thing is that China, for the past decade, two decades, they've been promoting a lot of、uh, infrastructure as well as、uh, internal growth. So a lot of this created a lot of overnight high net worth. Case in point, Shenzhen. A lot of a lot of Shenzhen, a lot of people from Shenzhen are the outlying villages, if you will, because of development. They a lot of the, the displacement fees, if you will, they are being paid a hefty sum, a tremendous amount, or they're giving you know one or two houses in the upcoming development or somewhere else. And guess what? Now immediately they have a couple million dollars at the disposal, and then the ball rolls. Yeah. So um, what, speaking of this, there is a company I used to work with. Quite interesting. She primarily deals with second tier and third tier cities in China. Do you understand the tier system in China? Nope. Okay. So it's in China, right? You have your first tier, second tier, third tier, fourth tier. Your first tier cities are your Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and your second tier will be something like Chengdu, something like. Yeah, Chengdu, like Qingdao, maybe. Yeah, at the third tier or fourth tier. Obviously, the, the you know the higher the number goes, the more the less modernized the city is. Okay, and then、uh, when you go you know really down the spectrum, that kind of digging a hole, the digging a hole in the ground to kind of use a restroom in it, it definitely still exists. So、uh, you know, as the China, as we just mentioned earlier, the, the boom of the industrial growth, the boom of 
the uh, infrastructure grows. This allows a lot of developers to go into the second, third, fourth tier city and just go, let's just say you and me. Well, we got a grant, we got uh, the loan, we have the money. We got to go to some small city in the middle of nowhere and go, we are about to build essentially a $100 million project here. Okay, we want to buy the land. Well, you guys don't want to leave. Let's negotiate. We got to give you each one of you guys a house or we got to give you each, each one of you guys 500K just to leave. They go, okay, the whole village leave. But all this whole village, remember, their income may have been 150 bucks a month just a year ago. Now, I don't know where I got 500K. What do they do with this money? And this company, what they do is they go to, the, they follow the developers, they go to these guys and go, hey, do you guys want to invest? Do you want to invest in different, you know, financial products, whatever? And then this is this has been a phenomenon. And then they've had turned for this. It's, it's quite interesting. And then, honestly, the China, the China financial ecosystem, as well as its growth, is something ordinary. And then, you know, past travel to China, you see everything. You see how a legislation go from non-existent to, to being in place and being perfected in two to three years. And you see how things change with technology. And then you see how really that kind of integration with the global growth and the global e- ecosystem and how it affects America. And then how people like Hong Kong, as well as our other colleagues that came over here and how we had to deal with, how we had to evolve and adapt to the American way of doing business, the kind of culture integration and the birth of these, these kind of new professions, if you will, whereas people like me, the intermediary between the two cultures, between the two countries, try to make business work. And it's, it's truly something fascinating. Yeah, super exciting. And it's crazy that you go from scooping a hole in the ground to use the bathroom to getting 500K to, to go away. Yeah, I mean, these are arbitrary numbers, but yeah. So, so um, there, is, uh, there is a story of, of uh, so this is RMB, not USD. And this guy out of Shenzhen, uh, this family, because their place, their village was at this prime location, beautiful sceneries or whatever. And then the developer decided to go like, hey, we're going to build here. So after this, we're gonna give you a uh, we're gonna give you a house. Are you guys okay with it? On the same spot, they say okay. So they build a house, and the house is priced about two billion dollars. Two billion dollar RMB. I know it was on the news, and people just go, "That's lottery." See, you mentioned earlier about lottery in real estate. That's lottery. Okay, you <laughs> where are you gonna get this anywhere else, right? And it's fantastic. It's so fun to see. That's awesome. So where do you see? Uh, what are your predictions for the future? How will uh, Chinese investments? change here in the u.s and you know what do you think about the trade war and everything like that i think trade war right trade war a lot of people don't understand is that trade war will end and then i force i I don't know what the future will be but i really see more chinese investors be more educated and more chinese investors stepping outside the comfort zone of your traditional investment in buying houses condos apartments into investment in bigger projects in commercial real estate in development in redevelopment in understanding the structure of syndications understanding the structure of portfolio creating portfolio in also understanding that in america there's opportunities for different kind of investment in financial products in alternative investments in funds in different kind of things and then i think that with the growth of china and its citizens we are going to see another influx of investors, Chinese investors, into the different spectrum of our economy that are normally held by your, your so-called traditional Americans. And this will be interesting to see um, how their presence will affect the American political structure 
and then especially with the upcoming election or you know the the, the preparation thereof, we gotta see how the China government will really influence civilians, and then is uh, is the, the Chinese expats on their kind of directions on either places to live, places to move, things to buy, and things to trust. But as far as something probably more akin or closer related to your to your listeners are, you know, the real estate uh, the real estate market. I think that for people who wanted to buy their own house right now is we are entering a pretty good time. You know, they just drop the interest rate again, and if you have some liquidity saved up, watch the market get ready to go. And if you're looking for investors, you know, the kind of redevelopments that kind of flips the traditional model that's probably long gone by now. Too many players in the game. But if you're ready to Kind of partner up with Chinese uh, with Chinese investors, like we like we uh, like we talked about earlier. Go talk to them, make your pitch. Chinese investors are very fluid; they are very open to new ideas. As long as you can bridge the gap of the culture gap, they're under helping them understand what exactly your project is. Because a lot of the investors, like we said, you know, they're either sitting on the fence or in the or they're bipolar. You find the guys that sit on the fence. You find a bipolar guy that said no. They said I don't want to invest in anything right now. What does that mean? That means they have money. That means right now they are also uncertain. Convince them. Bring them into your projects. Bring them into your platform. Bring them into whatever portfolio you're creating or opportunities that you see that you think exists out there and make it happen. And then all I can say is that right now, especially on the West Coast, we are seeing one of the biggest congregation of Chinese capital that's willing to go somewhere. So I hope your listeners go out there, approach your um, approach the field, your local professional services, approach your you know your friends, and approach your you know other colleagues in the field, and really make this happen. Because I feel that the more people that are educated about real estate, the more people that are being educated about investment, the better it will be for the entire profession. It will be better for the entire field. We all benefit. So let's go out there and then let's just try to connect the dots, everybody. Make your dream happen. Make your project happen. And at the end of the day, you know, let's make a make it fun and make a living out of it. Sounds good. All right, John. Thank you so much for your time today. How can people get in contact with you? Feel free to reach me on my email. This is um, you can reach on my personal email actually. So John at gmail dot com. J O H N dot C H E N G dot Y U at gmail dot com. I check my email pretty regularly, and I love to chat about investment, um, the investment ecosystem, real estate growth, whether it be residential, whether it be commercial, or just to chit chat in general. Let me know. I love making new friends. Get to know, uh, let's get to know each other. Sounds good. All right, John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. In general, Chinese people love real estate, and most of the large Chinese funds in the Bay Area are investing in development for high luxury condos. The trade war creates some panic from investors, it affects your livelihood and their liquidity to invest in some things like financial products or real estate, but the people who want to invest will find a way to do it. Some investors are also concerned about the safety and legitimacy of their investment. If they invest through shady channels, their money could be caught in the middle of two countries, so they tend to invest in assets with lower returns but more stability. Follow the trends and look where large funds are pouring their investments into and purchase properties near those sites. Their investment will help yours in the long run. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. Thanks and have a great day.
This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day.